This is the real-life story of how I quit my awesome job as a clinical pharmacist of 11 years with no real plan of what I'd do next. I had a vague notion that I wanted something different to make a greater impact and to use different parts of my brain. I started talking to friends, then friends of friends, and so on and so forth. Now I'm discovering some brilliant career pivots proving that there is life after clinical pharmacy. And I wanted to share my journey with you. This is Career Reconstituted, how these pharmacists turn their job into a dream job. And I'm your host, Monica Mehta. I'm so pleased to have Dr. Nicholas Georgiadis with us today on Career Reconstituted. Nick is a residency-trained internal medicine pharmacist who quickly pivoted into industry as an infectious diseases medical science liaison. After 10 years of working as an MSL, Nick founded Farm Accelerator, Inc., which is a technology company that supports medical affairs departments throughout pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and other companies within the life science industry. He is also the managing director of Pharmaco Talent, which is a recruitment agency specializing in medical science liaison positions and also provides professional development services for candidates who are interested in starting a career in the pharmaceutical industry. Nick is a recruiter, career mentor, and career coach. In his spare time, he enjoys cooking, traveling, and visiting new places with his fiance. Nick, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here, Monica. Is there anything you want to say or ask right off the bat? Uh, just, I've seen some of your early episodes in this podcast and want to congratulate you on your sex success already. This is a skill set that I certainly learned about you that I never knew you were interested in or, or that you had. So it's a super professional setup. I love the work that you're doing and congrats so far. I hope 2024 is excellent for you as well as everybody who's listening to this. Uh, thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, I am so happy to finally be able to marry pharmacy and my filmmaking skills together vis-a-vis -vis this podcast. And it brings me a lot of joy to be able to do it and to share all these great stories with people. Sure. So for your first question, if you could be any drug, which one would you be and why? Yeah, I, I like that you answer that you ask this question to, to your guests. It's always interesting to hear what everybody has to say. I think given our backgrounds in infectious diseases, my answer is going to be super cliche. But for those not in ID or perhaps those who aren't pharmacists, I think it's very good to hear this uh, because I personally think penicillin is one of the best drugs ever discovered. And if you think about it, it's been around for less than 100 years. And during that time, what has it done? It's almost doubled life expectancy. Uh, usually when I look at what I consider a good drug, I look at does it cure disease and does it save lives? Penicillin does both of those. So not only has it extended lives, it's cured countless diseases and saved countless lives, but it's also spurred the development of dozens of additional therapeutics that we're using today. It's responsible for allowing a lot of these treatments that we have today, whether they're surgeries, whether they're chemotherapies, it is such a pivotal, pivotal therapeutic that we have in our, in our repertoire that I'm very, very happy to come from this background and very happy to be such a strong advocate for something even as simple as penicillin. Yes. Thank you, Alexander Fleming. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Changed the world. So Nick, I first met you when you were in MSL and you 
were an MSL, you were very young. You also continue to look very young. So congrats on that. But you went straight into industry after your PGY2, which is very unique. So why didn't you start off like most clinical pharmacists doing clinical work in a hospital setting? Yeah, that's that's true. I did spend two years working in a hospital prior to transitioning into MSL. And I'm very happy to have taken that path, to be to be honest. I, I think that it reconciled my interest with directly helping patients as well as a business interest that I've always had. And I knew at that age that the earlier I get into the industry, the better it will be for the rest of my career. So while I loved the hospital work, I loved working with other teams of doctors and directly with patients, I knew that this was something that I had to do and it was better to do it earlier. And what was attractive to you about industry? I kind of see work sometimes as a game. And it's just like a different type of game with different rules and different complexities. And it was always something that I really enjoyed, like figuring out, you know, how to do well in. And certainly that translates to what I'm doing these days. But I just saw the industry as a very complex game that I wanted to be a part of. And I wanted to see how well I could do. Yeah, I like that metaphor, that it's a game. And also, I've heard from others that in pharmaceutical companies, there are some other advantages. And I like to talk about that, flesh that out a little bit more during this conversation. But a couple things I heard is one, there's better work-life balance. And number two, there's more of a career pathway. Do you think that's true as well? 100%. Both of those are true. Uh, it depends on the, situ uh, on the position that you're in within the industry in terms of work-life balance. As an, <clears throat> excuse me. As an MSL, I think that balance is definitely there, but there's plenty of other positions within the industry that, that offer that great work-life balance. And certainly the, the career path is also there. You start off, I mean, MSL is not necessarily an entry-level position, but there is a much more uh, defined path that you can take after becoming an MSL or just getting your foot in the door with your first industry position. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the drawbacks to it? What are some of the negatives compared to clinical pharmacy? You remember as a clinical pharmacist how it was always difficult to justify an additional FTE for a clinical pharmacist because it's just difficult to measure how good of a clinical pharmacist somebody is. The same exact thing happens in, in, with MSLs. There's a very, it's such a subjective position and you can have a, a metric, for example, that's okay, a quantitative metric, you need to have X amount of meetings per month, per quarter, per year, but how do you measure how good those interactions were? Another drawback is that the industry is constantly changing. You can never really have that level of comfortability in knowing that you're, that the same team will be around next year, two years from now, et cetera. The co companies go through constant change. And so there is that element of, of kind of discomfort that you just kind of need to deal with while working in the industry. There's been a lot of layoffs in 2023, and certainly that's one of the symptoms of what I'm describing. Yeah, so you're saying that there's kind of this ambiguity about metrics in industry as far as 
how do I do my job well? What's the number that's associated with me doing my job well? And number two, there's the uncertainty about future because companies are merging and getting bought out and going under if the data looks bad. So from what I understand, that's more true for small biotech companies rather than large pharmaceutical companies. Is that true? It is probably more so. However, large pharmaceutical companies are not immune to these type of adjustments, so they absolutely undergo them as well. And if you think about it, at least from an MSL perspective, part of the rationale behind having a good understanding of how good the team is performing is because they're very expensive to employ. If you forget about just salary, for example, if you add up all the costs of employing an MSL, it's about $300,000 a year. And then you multiply that by a team of 10, for example, you're talking about real money. So having a difficult to prove team that it's difficult to portray, to showcase their, their efficacy is very costly. So it's one of the reasons why it's very important to be able to properly showcase the efforts of your team. Yeah. Um, someone I interviewed, Mike Blecker, I don't know if you know him. He is a um, scientific director for a mid-sized biotech company. He explained it to me that as an MSL, because I was kind of pushing him a little bit about like, oh, when I was a clinical pharmacist, I thought of everyone as sales. I didn't differentiate a salesperson from an MSL. And he kind of pushed back and he said, I don't care if you use my drug or not. I just want you to use it correctly if you're going to use it, which really was eye-opening to me and made a lot of sense. But it's hard to know, like from a business perspective, how that is, how you get a return on investment for just having people make sure you use the medication well. How would you explain that? It's a great point. And I agree that MSLs are not, their priority is not to get the healthcare provider to use the product. But at the end of the day, if the product doesn't perform, these are businesses. So something has to give. However, if you have a performing product, then uh, at least you, uh, MSLs can rest assured, but absolutely numbers and dollars are not a metric that is, is a way to measure performance for an MSL. I remember meeting with you when you were an MSL, and correct me if my memory is, inc is wrong, but you really helped me out, helped me figure out what the breakpoints were for cefiterocol, the zone of inhibitions, because that had changed a couple times, and then there was like the CLSI breakpoint, the FDA breakpoint. And after I talked to you, I cre you helped me create a table and double-checked my yeah. numbers that I used so much because people would come to me all the time because we had a lot of multidrug-resistant gram-negative infections. Like, oh, what is this crazy number I'm getting on my micro report? And I would say, oh, I know what that is and I know the breakpoint because you helped me with that. Now, did that help us use more cefiterocol? No, because we used cefiterocol when we needed to, but it helped us use it more appropriate. So I kind of understand where he's coming from. But the question I have for you is, do MSLs result in a return on investment? Because you're saying it costs $3 million to employ a team of 10 MSLs. So how do they, just from a pure business perspective, um, bring money back to the company? It's... So, and this is somewhat controversial in the world of medical affairs. Some folks believe that MSLs provide basically clinical and scientific support. And just 
forget about the controversy for a second. Let's just kind of keep that as as an easy to understand, um, easy to understand responsibility of MSL. So clinical and scientific support. Basically, it's technical support for a product. And think about the amount of times that you've called technical support for whatever gadget you're using. Uh, maybe you need to fix something. Maybe you need something clarified. You need to learn how to use it. That's pretty much what MSLs do. And so while that doesn't provide a return directly to the company, that's still a very valuable service to offer because it helps them, it, you know, helps create reputation for the company as well as the product. Certainly, if I can speak to you as a pharmacist, pharmacist to pharmacist, then there's that level of trust that you have between the MSL and HCP. Um, it's not only uh, it's not only between pharmacists and pharmacists, doctors, PhDs, nurse practitioners are all often MSLs. So I think having that peer level of, of a relationship is a value in and of itself, even if it doesn't translate directly to dollars. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to you those times, I didn't feel like I was talking to a drug company or to a salesperson. I felt like I was talking to a colleague. So I do get it. Um, it's just, you know, so many people refer to pharma as the dark side. And, you know, I used to think that way too until COVID. And during COVID, I, I was like, wow, through this public-private partnership, Operation Warp Speed, you know, pharmaceutical companies, hand-in-hand -hand with government, save the world, developing these mRNA vaccines, so that's one example. And the other is, you know, we have practically cured hepatitis C oh. through these antivirals. And the, how people were treated with hepatitis C was terrible prior to those. And now they're being cured. So I have changed my thoughts on pharmaceutical company as well. But a lot of people still do refer to it as the dark side. Yeah. Is that changing? And how do you even care or about that does that affect you because this is your whole livelihood now not only were you an msl for so many years now you've created a company around you know developing people in this role yeah i care deeply about that i think that first through over my 10 years as an msl i'm very happy to have met the types of people that i did internal and external i think that most folks who work for for the industry are just normal people who want to take care of themselves and their families and they want to provide for their families. I think the reason why the industry gets that type of reputation is because the way I like to call it a machine, the way the machine is built, it's not a particularly pretty machine if you look at it from the outside or even from the inside. And is that a direct result of the individuals who work for the industry? No, absolutely not. It's a way of the uh, approval processes that are related and certain the relationship between the companies and the regulatory agencies. There's a whole layer upon layer upon layer that kind of looks like a machine. And I think that part is what needs to be a little more tempered in terms of the way people see it because you provided some amazing examples of these therapeutics that have made tremendous advancements in, in human health. Um, it doesn't mean it's not without its flaws. I mean, you talk about antibiotics for a minute, like there's very, it's very difficult to make an antibiotic profitable, especially one that's used in the hospital setting. 
So while you have these massive needs for these new life-saving therapeutics, there's very little incentive to create them because of, again, the way the machine operates. Reimbursements in the hospital don't work the same way reimbursements in an outpatient pharmacy work. And so there's fantastic agents out there that should potentially do better than they do, but that's just the game that we're playing. Yeah. So I would comment on two things. One, I think what you're referring to is that for hospital patients, hospitals are reimbursed based on what's called a DRG, diagnostic related group. So if someone comes in for pneumonia, I get X number of dollars as a hospital to manage that patient. Now, if I exceed X number of dollars, then I'm in the red. If I spend less than X number of dollars, I'm in the black. And every hospital wants to be in the black, right? So if I am using your new, very expensive antibiotic, then that, I'd rather use a cheaper one. Not that hospitals do this. I mean, most people in hospitals, the providers are trying to do the best thing for their patients. But just in theory, one would want to use the less expensive drug so that, you can make a little bit of a margin on that patient um, because it's it's expensive to run hospitals too. So hospitals are disincentivized to using expensive drugs. Now, do we use expensive chemo? Yes, Um, but that's kind of a different ball game. So yeah, and then they employ people like me and my colleagues who are stewards and try to prevent overusing these new fancy antibiotics, not because of cost, but because we want to protect them from resistance. And so they don't get used enough. There's no ROI. So pharmaceutical companies are like, we're not going to make antibiotics anymore. There's no profit. But I think that's where policy comes in through economics to try to incentivize the development of antibiotics. But I always thought it was interesting that you switched from internal medicine, because there's so many lucrative drugs out there, like all the, you know, DOAX and, you know, all the onc drugs and all the biologics, but you went into ID, which is probably the hardest niche for pharma. So why did you do that in spite of the barriers with antibiotics? Yeah, and thanks for asking that question, because perhaps I could have offered that when I first told about how I got into the MSL role. Basically, when I was a clinical pharmacist, I learned so much that they don't teach you in pharmacy school, particularly, you know, not just how hospitals work, but how drugs work. You get to see if you're like on an ICU, for example, you get to see in real time how the drug works, if it works at all and what the outcome is. And so I kind of made a deal with myself. I was like, here I am, clinical pharmacist, almost changing my perspective on medications altogether. So I said to myself, I want to transition into the industry, but I'm only going to do it in support of an agent that I love as a clinical pharmacist. And that's really how I found myself in ID. At the time, I was, I, at the time, as a clinical pharmacist, I loved the drug ceftaroline. I just could never get over, and I still really can't. The fact that it's a cephalosporin, but it's, you know, it treats these infections that are, that cephalosporins are supposed to be inactive against. So I love ceftaroline as a clinical pharmacist. And so that's why I transitioned into the MSL role in support of ceftaroline among other antibiotics. Oh, that was your first drug? Yeah, that was my first uh, drug. So then can I geek out 
with you for one second for the ID people listening. So how come Ceftaroli never got an FDA-approved indication for bacteremia as monotherapy? Well, then we're talking about the machine again. So certainly there are other relatively high-profile antibiotics that do have that, that indication, but sometimes things change. The guidance changes. Maybe that indication is no longer offered. Maybe the rules in order to get that indication have changed. And, you know, this is going back 10 years at this point. So I, I, it's hard for me to say for sure, but I believe that's what's happened. Um, it's a great bacteremia drug, but it's indicated for skin and, and pneumonia, which is not really where ceftaroline was used. So that's actually something I learned when I first jumped into the industry. I saw this fantastic drug as a clinical pharmacist, jumped into the industry. And I was like, oh, so this is how it works. They don't teach you this in anywhere other than the school of hard knocks. That machine. Hmm. So you're saying that has something to do with like the FDA requirements for labeling. So getting into all that nitty gritty and has, you know, that became that blocked the passage or something like that. Perhaps the guidance was changed. So, you know, in order to gain a indication, companies need to adhere to FDA guidance on how to study a drug. Uh, maybe that guidance changes over time. Maybe that guidance disappears altogether. So mm, the pathway may not even be at all available. I mean, has there been mm -hmm. a bacteria approved antibiotic since that though? Um, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Oh, well, Televansen, I guess. Aritavansen, Televansen. Do they have the bacteria approvals? Maybe skin with concurrent bacteremia, but not bacteremia like Dapto. Okay. Well, let's you know, <laughs> pause on this. As much as I like to nerd out about ID, I want to ask something on behalf of a lot of people listening. So I had a conversation with a career coach. Um, his name is Alex Barker. He runs the Happy Farm D. And he talked about so many people in, in pharmacy being burned out. And it's not just people in retail, that's the stereotype, but it's also clinical pharmacists and pharmacists that work in hospitals. And a lot of them are going into industry. So I wanted to ask you, for the people who are considering this, what should they do with their CV? What should they think about doing with their knowledge base in order to transition into a pharmaceutical company? Great question. And this is something that took me a long time to figure out. If you're a pharmacist, if you're an NP, if you're a PhD and you're looking to transition into the industry, you need to create a professional brand. And they don't teach this to you in school while you're trying to learn about medicine and pharmacology. But if you're looking to have an industry career, your brand is very important. So it starts with, of course, you. What do you want people to know about you right away, perhaps without even talking to you? And then it extends into the virtual world. So your LinkedIn is very important. Your, the content that you post on LinkedIn is very important. The replies that you make to people's posts on LinkedIn is very important. Even the LinkedIn banner. So I like to think of your LinkedIn banner as like a, what is it? The, the, uh, you see on the side of the road, the, uh, Sign. Yeah, like the billboard. So you, you, 
Your LinkedIn banner is the billboard of your professional brand. Something as simple as a custom LinkedIn banner that maybe has your name and your credentials, but also certain colors, certain shapes that you identify that people can kind of begin to be funneled into your profile, your LinkedIn page is very important. At, at the very least, it doesn't deter people from wanting to talk to you. And at best, it has people reaching out to you without you even reaching out to them at first. So you have to brand yourself through your LinkedIn, through you, through your replies, through your, through your content, and then your resume, of course, and some of the skills that you develop along the way. I, I have entered the word of, world of LinkedIn. And um, one of my previous guests, Dr. Swetha Chawla, talked about how LinkedIn is a very intimidating place that she had to circle for months and months before she found an entree into LinkedIn, how to position herself. And I have you know, started working more in LinkedIn, partly because of the podcast and partly because, you know, I'm looking for my dream job too. And I guess I'm just being myself on there. I haven't curated myself in a certain way. Can you, not specifically for me, but for anyone listening, can you give an example, more specific example of how to create a brand other than the banner? Sure. When you think about LinkedIn, you kind of need to think about it as if it were any other social media platform. So there's an algorithm, there's keywords, there's all sorts of things that you can change in your profile that are totally genuine. You can still remain the person that you are without changing any of those uh, key deeply held beliefs that you have, but there's a way to kind of optimize how visible you are. So your tagline is very important. Your about me section is very important. I'm very big on the idea that people, everybody has ADD these days. So you gotta keep everything short. Uh, your about me section should hit the main points of who you are, but it should be told in a formatted way maybe only four to five sentences so people can read it quickly. And it should be told importantly in story format because people love reading stories. You're a professional on stories. I'm sure you could very easily adapt your background to your LinkedIn in the form of a story. Yeah, I, I did write a story, but the AI did not like it and changed it all. And then I changed it back. So I don't, yeah, I, yeah, I, I feel like I have to be me, but yeah, I, I think I hear what you're saying is that be you, be the genuine you, but be thoughtful about how you phrase things to communicate things effectively. So I like that. That's really good advice and, and guidance. What else can one do besides like polishing up their LinkedIn and creating a brand? Is there something that they should get on their resume in terms of experience or highlight on their resume in order to be attractive to pharma? It depends on the position that you're applying for, but as an umbrella answer, yeah, absolutely. So one way of doing it, so we all are familiar with the systems that you use to apply to jobs. And there's, usually there's an electronic system and they employ a computer to kind of like read your resume. So the right keywords need to be in your resume. Mm -hmm. 
one way to do that is to reconcile your resume with the job description that you're applying for and make sure a lot of those keywords from the job description are also in your resume because it just increases the chances of the computer gatekeeper of passing along your information to uh, basically HR, a person. And that's what you want. You want to be, if you're going to be, it's a very long process finding a new career, especially if you don't have any experience in the industry. So you want to increase your chances as much as you can. And doing that means if you're going to be weeded out, be weeded out by a human, not a computer. So make sure your resume is formatted correctly so the computer can read it. Make sure those keywords are there. But importantly, aside from all that stuff, just don't let failure determine your outcome. You should expect this to be a difficult process. You should expect this to be a relatively long process. And so don't be deterred just because, you know, maybe you didn't get the job on the first try in the first interview. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. Yeah. I mean, tenacity, I think is a common theme among all of my guests as well. Something that I'm learning. Um, so you're focused on MSLs, but what are some of the other jobs in pharmaceutical companies that pharmacists can take? Great question. If MSL isn't really right for you, let's say maybe you have a research background in academia or in the clinical world, then clinical development is a very interesting department for a pharmacist to, to, to work in. Clinical department is basically, you can kind of think of it as, as R&D. So they develop the product through research, often, often, like, oftentimes according to the FDA guidance, and they do it from basically the bench side into the early clinical trials, into the late phase three clinical trials and real world evidence generation as well. So that's a fantastic area for, for pharmacists if you have that mm -hmm. research background. Um, sales is, is not a bad route to go either. I would um, especially recommend for those who, who are very eager to jump into the, the industry without any prior experience. It's not just MSL, but if you can find a product that you really love, then sales is a great area as well because most reps do not come from a pharmacy background. So companies really value those with that PharmD background as reps. Um, but really, it's it's there's PharmDs employed throughout the industry. You wouldn't think so necessarily, but even regulatory, having that that scientific background in a regulatory position is very valuable and it makes you very distinct. Yeah, um, I think most of the people I know that went into pharma are MSLs, and a few are not. So it just seems like that is the natural gravitational pull into industry, at least for the first step. And then you move into like scientific director or something else. I guess drug information is another route of entry. Absolutely. Drug information is typically part of the medical affairs department. So they're in the same department as MSL. And then just to differentiate this a bit, sales of course is on the commercial side. PharmDs can also be in the marketing side. Regulatory is a separate department, and so is clinical development. Mm -hmm. So you were working in the pharmaceutical company, two companies, over the course of, was it five years or 10 years? Something ten like years. that. Yep, 10 years. 10 years. And then at what point, because now I want to talk about you a little bit. 
Um, at what point did you decide, I want to be an entrepreneur? And how did you go about taking that step into becoming an entrepreneur and starting your own company? So Farm Accelerator started as a side project. I was a MSL in the New York area and then COVID hit. So my HCPs who I called on were all infectious diseases, doctors, pharmacists, microbiologists. And so you can imagine, they're also ICU practitioners. You can imagine the steep decline in, in the number of meetings that very abruptly happened when an infectious diseases hit the world. So I remember like I speak with other, you know, networks, salespeople and just kind of meet with them to kind of bounce ideas off each other. I remember one day explaining to them that situation, like, listen, I'm an industry professional. I've got an ID background. The people who I call on our ID and now we have this infectious disease and it's kind of impacting things a little bit. It took over. Yeah, <laughs> completely. Uh, eventually, I think doctors were very happy to talk about antibiotics instead of virology, but it took a couple months to get there. Um, but my friend went to me and was like, hey, you know, I just started a coaching program. Why don't you start one? Why don't you help transition people into your position? It seems to be pretty desirable. And I was like, it's a good idea. So I just started off as a side project, uh, got permission from my company to, to start something up and just took a couple clients at a time to basically see if the techniques that I used would also work for other, other candidates. And they did, thankfully. So basically what happened was this snowballed into what the company is today. Um, it is now about three years since that side project turned into basically a tech company. But I mean, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. The problem is I never really knew where to begin and what to do until my friend was just like, why don't you just start a coaching company? And so started with that. I had no idea that there was going to be a piece of software involved years later, but that's kind of what you, anybody can do who've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, just start with something and you never know where that something is going to go and what that's going to turn into. So that's pretty much how we ended up here today. So can you, in layman's terms, explain what farm, so you have two companies, right? Farm Accelerator. And the yep. other one is Pharmacotalent. Pharmacotalent. Yeah. So starting with Farm Accelerator, which is the one you founded, what in layman's terms does that company do? I basically created a software tool that I wish I would have had as an MSL. I believe that MSLs certainly differentiated from salespeople. And in that differentiation, one of the most important things that a MSL can provide to their company is what we call medical insights. These are pieces of information that a doctor tells an MSL that are incredibly strategic. They can be brought back into the company, into those who make strategic decisions so that maybe development of the drug could be steered that commercial could be steered, that marketing can be steered. They're very strategic pieces of information. So I remember 
collecting these medical insights and then talking to some of those in my network and realizing, you know, there's really not a standard for organizing and reporting these insights. It would, we would review these every few months and it would take like eight to 12 hours just to get these into a reportable form. So I was like, okay, these are very strategic pieces of information. There's not a good process for, for gathering, organizing and, and reporting on them. Why don't I start with that? I'll create an easy to use feature with a click of a button. It saves eight to 12 hours of time. It's an accelerator. We, we do what the company says it does. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I do get some, uh, yeah, people, people tell me it's a good name. Sometimes it's a little confusing, but, um, yeah, we do accelerate what medical affairs provides and we're building a new feature right now that I'm very excited about that saves 10 hours of MSL time every single month by basically managing their territory automating some of these necessary but tedious tasks that MSLs do every single month. And so we do accelerate the delivery of, of qualitative outcomes for MSLs. That's great. So it's an app then? Yeah, it's, a, it's an application. It's a software tool. Um, it is uh, on a mobile device, but it's also on the PC. It basically integrates with the most common CRM, Salesforce, Viva, and then takes that data and accelerates it into those who need to see it. Oh, very cool. Congratulations. That's really great. And then the Pharmaco talent side is career coaching for pharmacists that want to go into pharmaceutical company work. So we do have the Medical Excellence Lab, which does okay. offer just that. But our bread and butter is that of a recruiting agency. So we partner with clients who need to fill XYZ positions, whether they're in-house or contract and then we help find those candidates. But the two companies work together very well um, because there's so many skills that we could provide to our candidates who could then be placed into companies who could then benefit from their processes being accelerated. So if I was someone who, I was burned out of my job and I was thinking, I wanna go into pharma, I could call you and you could help steer me in the right direction, but also, you know, match me with a position where there's a need on the other end. So it's like a win-win. For sure. Companies these days are looking for that needle in a haystack. So they're looking for a very specific type of candidate. And of course, you know, it's no guarantee we have an open position for you given that, but there's definitely something we can offer anybody who's trying to break into the industry, whether it's the professional branding, interview preparation, or if we do have a client looking to fill a position, then we offer that too. And what is that needle in the haystack? Is it a je ne sais pas? You're like, I don't, I can't describe it, but I know when I see it, or are there some descriptive terms you could give to it? We can use, let's use ID as an example. Um, oncology is another great one, but since we know ID, we can use that. Um, ID is a very niche, niche market in the industry. There may be a good amount of ID pharmacists out there, ID docs, but companies are looking for maybe a pharmacist with a academic uh, institution experience in the clinical world, maybe one with research, but not only that, also somebody who can break down complex science, who's easy to get along with, who HCPs could see themselves as a peer and they could enjoy being around, 
that's not easy to find. Even though there's a lot of ID pharmacists out there, they also need to be in the right geography. Um, there's all sorts of variables that companies are looking for. And that's you know the benefit of using a recruiter. We're able to identify the candidates, especially a recruiter with a scientific MSL background can know exactly what the client is looking for and find that right candidate for them. But it's still, it's, it's another game. It's very fun. And it's like kind of like a, uh, the, the timing is very important. The, the individual needs to be open to starting a new position while the client is looking for, to fill that position. So it's a very, it's like juggling like 15 things at once and miraculously they all stay up in the air. Yeah. Um, that's the skill. So your client is, are your clients are the pharmaceutical companies, not the pharmacists. Correct. Gotcha. Um, for the lab, the excellent medical excellence lab, they could be the candidates as well. Okay. Gotcha. And that's under the, um, pharmaco talent company. Yep. Okay. Got it. You're doing a lot. So if you're at a dinner party and someone asks you, what do you do? What's your answer to that? <laughs> Pretty much this is my answer. Um, wake up early, work all day. Uh, starting up two companies is, is not an easy process. So the amount of work that goes in, especially at the beginning is tremendous. You go to bed at late, late at night. And um, basically a lot of it is, is branding. A lot of it is development, maybe of the application. A lot of it is outreach to potential clients. And then there is the actual once you have a client fulfilling what they want and whether it's the application, whether it's skill development or whether it's uh, placing candidates, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's again, just another huge game that I see It's really fun to, to do. And, and that's, that's what I do, Monica. <laughs> it's well, very I, different. I think you should, if you, if someone comes up to you at a dinner party and asks what you do, I think you should have a shorter answer, but maybe your shorter answer is I break down the machine and then just let the conversation. <laughs> I help the machine run very efficiently. Yeah, that's good. Cause it's really hard, I guess for a lot of people I interview, it's really hard to say what they do. Cause if you say I'm a pharmacist, then they say, well, what store do you work at? And you could say that I'm a pharmacist by training, but I work for pharmaceutical companies to help, you know, then you're going into this like long thing. So it's hard to be succinct. I'm gonna have to work um, on that. Yeah. Yeah. Do something funny. I think I break down the machine. <laughs> I help machines run. I used to say when I worked on antibiotics, I, I kill bacteria. Ooh, yeah, yeah, that's good. What's next for you? I think the roadmap of these companies has so much runway that this is my, my sheer focus for the medium to long term. And really what's next is, is I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to expand my entrepreneurial aspirations into different industries that I know nothing about. I'm just looking to learn and to see what opportunities arise and just be open enough to understand that what you envision today 
may not be anything close to what happens, but that could also be a really good thing. Having that uncertainty to it makes it exciting and helps you adapt to what comes your way. So not, not, not knowing is sometimes a good thing. Yeah. Like what do you, what, what are you, what do you think is next for you? Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, my dream job, I am getting closer to figuring out what that is. Um, mainly because I'm talking to so many people and sometimes when they talk about what they do, I get really excited. And so that is a sign to me that that's something that I should look into for myself, but I'm taking my time doing all my creative projects while I'm figuring things out. So big question mark. That's okay. You never know what this is going to snowball into. Somebody's going to see your podcast and be like, wow, this is a pharmacist who's got like video editing skills and audio skills and all that. That is something that who knows how many pharmacists has. It can't be that many. It could absolutely turn into who knows. Yes. Um, We'll see. We'll see. But thank you for your confidence. And thank you so much for spending your time talking to us and sharing so many important insights about what it takes and the skills and the tweaks that we need to make on our LinkedIn or resume in order to get it land a great job in a pharmaceutical company. Really appreciate all that you've shared with us. Of course. Thank you so much, Monica, for, for inviting me here. It's really great to catch up with you, not as an MSL or a clinical pharmacist. Um, this career is being reconstituted for both of us. So really excited about that. Thanks, Nick. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Reconstituted, how these pharmacists turn their job into a dream job. My name is Monica Mehta. To our listeners, thank you for spending your hour with us in a world where time is a rare commodity. If you have any comments, questions, or recommendations for interviewees, please get in touch via Spotify on the episode notes page or on Instagram look for a handle career underscore reconstituted. And if you like the show, please subscribe or leave a rating. 